Hello and welcome to Presenting, a podcast where we chat about various topics related to role-playing games, typically Paizo products such as Pathfinder and Starfinder, but also others. I'm John Godick. With me today is Jeremy Blum. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm a big fan. Really love No Direction. I really love your interview. So yeah, it's really, really fun to be here. Well, it's it's great to have you. I think you are now my 102nd interview. Very nice. So over, over several years here now. Uh, so Jeremy is a journalist, game blogger, and comic book aficionado. Uh, after rolling his first polyhedral dice during a gaming session in Hong Kong several years ago, he dove headfirst into the world of tabletop RPGs and began freelancing in 2021. Since then, he's written for D&D Beyond and contributed to the recently announced Pathfinder Tianche hardcovers, as well as books three and four of the recently announced season of Ghost Pathfinder 2 Adventure Path. You can reach Jeremy at Pixel Grotto on Twitter. Uh, where does Pixel Grotto come from? Um, so I have a gaming blog. Uh, it's mostly yeah. video games, but now I yeah. write about a, a lot of tabletop stuff. So that yeah. started in 2013. Um, and, you know, I just ended up writing about a lot of retro games, games that came out, yeah. you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, Pixel Art. And I just, I wanted to find a title that, kind of resonated and wasn't really used very well so I, I ended up using pixel and i wanted to have like the word cave because i wanted my blog to be like okay this is my like cave where i take okay. deep dives into stuff this is my little corner of the internet and i i, I remember i you know i typed in cave into like dictionary.com for synonyms and one of them was grotto and i just settled on that it's good because nobody else has that name except for i think there's like one little indie game project that someone has released called into the pixel grotto but uh other than that, there aren't too many confusables, so yeah, it works no. well. No, no, it's cool. I mean, that's the only way I knew you online. I didn't even know your real name until you know. Recently. Yeah, it, it, in that so. case, it's it's doing its job. You know, people yeah. people, people have seen the name by now in yeah. enough places. So yeah, it it comes from my video game blog. Cool. So Jeremy, can you talk a little bit about your journey to becoming a freelance author and game designer? Yeah, so it's it's a it's it's a fun story because I'm I'm actually a, sort of a a newcomer to tabletop role playing games and and certainly writing for tabletop role playing games. I'm kind of the uh, the customer that I guess you know five uh, E sort of brought into the industry because I didn't start mm -hmm. actually playing tabletop games until 2017, so very recently. But the funny thing was uh, the funny thing is that I kind of grew up surrounded by tertiary stuff related to ttrpgs um like i grew up i had an older brother who was born in 79 he was there for like the height of DD, &D, um, but he never actually played DD. &D. uh he watched the DD cartoon show we had yeah. a toy we had a war duke toy um that i played with as a kid so i knew who these characters were and we had the uh tsr put out a a bunch of choose your own adventure books called endless mm -hmm. quest books and i loved reading those as a kid um, and so I was surrounded by this tertiary D&D merchandise, but I never had the chance to play the actual game. You know, in high school, I started reading those Forgotten Realms novels that they put yeah. out, like The Legend of Dritz. And I was so into that. Read the Icewind Dale trilogy in high school mm -hmm. um, and just loved all that stuff. And but never owned a D&D product. The one RPG product we did own was the uh, Palladium Robotech RPG. It's kind of yeah, a deep cut. Yeah, because yeah, my brother's a big Robotech and Macross fan. And so we owned that, uh, just the book. We had no idea how to play it. Uh, it looked very complicated because, you know, Palladium books, they made riffs. They had that kind of 
uh, mm-hmm. classic 80s crunch level to them and just right. a completely a completely incomprehensible to us. So um, <laughs> I, I had no idea how to exactly play a tabletop RPG. I really wanted to because it sounded cool. And uh, you know, I got really into video games instead. And so that was kind of where, you know, my education role playing games came from. You know, my brother and I grew up with a copy of Ultima 5. Um, mm-hmm. And then I really got into Japanese role playing games. And so for the longest time, I wanted to make video games. Um, and that's where kind of the pixel grotto thing came from. Like I had a blog about video games. Um, and then, you know, after uh, after college, I went to Asia for several years. I spent most of my 20s uh, living in Taiwan and Hong Kong. My mother's from Taiwan. And then I went to Hong Kong for graduate school. I got a uh, degree in uh, journalism there because I, I loved writing and I wanted to, uh, you know, explore Asia. And I really wanted to find a job where I could write for a living. Whether or not you can actually write for a living as a journalist is is, is a matter of, of, of to debate. It's and tough. tougher now, even yeah, yeah. it's, it's t- and tougher now. Um, but yeah, I, I did manage to get a job. I worked at uh, the South China Morning Post, which is a, which is an English newspaper in Hong Kong. Uh, that was my first major journalism gig, and I went on to a bunch of other papers as well. But I always tried to inject some of my interest into what I was writing. Uh, so I wrote about like you know. Uh, Chinese language role-playing games, like video role-playing games. This yeah. is an article for a, for the South China Morning Post. I wrote about like comic books published in like Hong Kong and stuff like that. And then eventually when I came back to the States, I got a job working at the Huffington Post as a contractor for about a year. And I wrote a bunch of articles about D&D. Uh, I wrote about the... Um, what what was the what was the current controversy back then? The Oriental Adventures controversy, mm, where okay. uh, you know the the book was attracting some notoriety online for you know its depiction of Asian cultures, and that sort of got me into the wider TTRPG community um, on Twitter. And then I started hanging out with the folks at Asians Represent, the Asians Represent podcast, who who became you know kind of um, famous for reading through Oriental Adventures and commenting on its depiction of Asian culture. So I got really involved with their Discord server and started uh, hanging out there all the time. And then I just you know one thing led to another, and then I finally got into writing, uh, writing projects. I you know I talked to a person who knew a person who knew a person, started writing for D and D Beyond. Um, and then eventually talked to a person who knew a person started writing for, you know, Paizo and got the opportunity to be part of, you know, the Tiansha uh, remake. Um, and so it's it's really a long series of one thing leading to another, leading to another, leading to another. But uh, long story short, I finally kind of got into the TTRPG scene. Um, oh, and I also left out the point that I finally did get into D&D in 2017 in Hong Kong. Uh, because I had a, you know, had a, I knew a guy who was like, oh, you know, you've always wanted to play a tabletop game. Well, you know, let me run something for you and your friends. And we did. And that kind of kicked off the whole thing. All right. So, you know, you mentioned that you were writing for D&D Beyond and I went and, you know, kind of looked at some of those posts and you've been really prolific, um, you know, kind of explaining different things in 5e in terms of uh, creatures, in terms of feats and skills and stuff like that. Uh, how did that come about? Because that's that's actually doing quite a bit. And I was that a paid gig or was that something that that you were just kind of doing on your own for free? I, I, I'm not sure yeah. how that worked. Uh, it, it was a paid gig. Um, they were looking for writers because uh, I think uh, the main writer that they had uh, producing articles for D&D Beyond, he left to uh, go work at another company. And so they needed a steady stream of content. So they started enlisting freelance writers and authors. And that was a connection that I made thanks to my participation in Asians Represent. Um, and they reached out to me on Twitter and, you know, 
they had seen some of the uh, um, the podcast appearances I had made on Asians Represent. They were like, hey, are you able to put out maybe an article a week for a little while? And I was like, sure. Um, and so I think the first one I wrote was using uh, uh, the chase rules in the Dungeon Master's yep. Guide. Um, and then I went on to, to write about, you know, playing uh, a werewolf in uh, D&D. Um, you know how to negotiate with monsters using the you know the D and D rules for you know hey if you want to talk with someone and don't necessarily want to fight them here's how you might influence their attitude towards you stuff like that like a lot of you know my interest has always been in kind of like what are these um, underutilized or underrepresented parts of the system that might be interesting to put to an article um, and I also got to write some sneak peeks at upcoming books that were new at the time like the Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft which was fun because you know. Uh, the first uh, campaign I ever GM'd myself was a Ravenloft game. So yeah, it was it was a good time, and I got paid for it. Um, I wrote pretty consistently for about a year. So I think uh, twenty twenty uh, beginning of twenty twenty one to beginning of twenty twenty two. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So having you know written for five E, and then now getting the chance to write for Pathfinder Second Edition. What are some of the the differences that you find in working with each system and the rule sets and things, and what type of challenges do those present for you? Um, it's it's interesting. Fifth uh, edition D and D is very easy to jump into. I mean, it brought a lot of people into the hobby. That's kind of its its main thing right now. It's easy to jump into. Um, pretty quick to start writing for. You can kind of throw a lot of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Um, but there's some challenges because it, it, it's difficult for me personally. I think other people might be better at it, but it's hard for me to design monsters in 5th edition D&D because I struggle with the challenge rating system a little bit. Um, and uh, occasionally I find myself inventing a lot of subsystems uh, whenever mm-hmm. I try to write something for 5th uh, edition because... Uh, fifth edition, you know, doesn't have a lot of subsystems. Uh, you know, most of that stuff comes from third parties. Um, and so, you know, I've been working on a, uh, you know, an Underdark adventure uh, on my own that, you know, I, I originally wanted to publish it on the DMs Guild. And, you know, I kind of created a little subsystem for interacting with monsters in the Underdark that you didn't want to fight and stuff like that. And it, it's still a work in progress. But I do find myself doing a lot of natural homebrew uh, when it comes time to write something in 5th edition. Uh, you don't have to do that in Pathfinder 2nd Edition because Pathf- Pathfinder 2nd Edition has all of those rules and is very modular in the sense that you can take this uh, section on you know creature attitudes towards you and there's all these rules and you can slot them into whatever you're writing. Uh, if you're writing a, a class in 5e versus Pathfinder 2nd Edition, you got to write a lot more in 2nd Edition, but you have that modular framework of, you know, uh, here's what people might think a class does. Here's what you actually do. Here are all the feats that you do. You know, plug them and slot them in, and there's your framework. Um, so in a sense, I find that a little bit easier because there is that foundation for me to to work on. Uh, the hard part, the hard part is you have to familiarize yourself with more rules like there's there's more to digest up front and i mean i think a lot of people have put this into terms much more eloquently than me but that's kind of the main difference between i think 5e uh second edition you have you have the ease of entry versus you know perhaps uh having to homebrew and create more things later down the line and you have perhaps uh 
for a second edition, you know, a bit tougher entry point, but then you have that framework once you really know everything to make things smoother as you go on. Mm -hmm. Have you done any conversions between the systems? Yes, I have done conversions. Uh, it's actually something I was uh, going to mention later, but uh, there is a <laughs> Kickstarter project called Undying Corruption, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a Korean uh, setting for fifth edition influenced by Korean mythology. It's really good stuff. Um, and I've been helping them with some conversions, converting 5e content into Pathfinder content. And it's, it's tricky. It's, it's a yeah. very fun and very educational, but it's tricky. Yeah, I was going to ask you, which is easier going from 5e to second edition Pathfinder or second edition Pathfinder to 5e? What do you think? I... But the conversion work I've done has essentially been recreating something in Pathfinder 2nd Edition, and it, it's I find it tough. I think it might be easier going the other way around, but I'm not necessarily sure because, you know, I think it's very it's tough to do direct conversions from one to right. the other. You know, it's it's not like, you know. 3.5e and Pathfinder 1st edition where it was a little bit more seamless. You have kind of an overhaul. And so even though 2nd edition has this, you know, the same basic classes, it has spell slots and stuff like that, the way a 2nd edition fighter works is fundamentally different from the way a 5th edition fighter works. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, in my work in Undying Corruption, there's a really cool class called the Tactician, which is, which is an awesome class, a little bit reminiscent of the 4e Warlord, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and converting that into uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition is tough because, you know, Pathfinder 2nd Edition doesn't really have things like, you know, uh, advantage or disadvantage or like battle dice that you can that you can play around with like the 5e battle master has so you need to kind of look at the confines of the modular system and figure out how to do it and it's, it's a very interesting challenge but uh, very time consuming in my opinion i kind of equate it to uh once again going back to video games you know you don't really see this anymore but 20 years ago when they would put out a video game for like the super nintendo or the, yeah. the sega yeah, master yeah. system or whatever there would also be like a game boy or a game gear version um, the best Game Gear and Game uh, Game Boy conversions were not the ones that tried to replicate what was possible on the 16-bit systems. They were the ones that recreated that experience for a handheld. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what it's like converting back and forth. You sort of had to recreate from the ground up, look at the fundamentals, look at what does this monster do in 5e? You know, okay, it, uh, you know, it swallows people up and slowly digests them. Okay, how can I create that in in Pathfinder Second Edition, all right, it's got an attack. That attack has a grab. That that that's maybe like a two-action combo, and then it has this, you know, reaction where it, you know, slowly digests you. And it's a fun experience, but you can't do a one-to-one -one conversion. You got to recreate right. from the ground. Right. No, for sure. So, I, you know, I know you can't go into specifics on things that have been announced but haven't been released. But can you talk a little bit about the Tianche books and the kind of related? Uh, season of a ghost adventure path that you had a chance to work on yeah so for the project i was uh responsible so i can say what i worked on because it was mentioned in the blog post yeah. and i got i got the permission to say what i worked on i cool. was the one responsible for um reinventing amanandar which is a region in uh Tiansha, which you can read about it in the first edition books but it's a it's a little notorious for being the one region in an asian inspired continent that uh, was born from colonization. Like you have the empire of Taldor, which is kind of like the Spanish empire, uh, came in and colonized a portion 
of the continent and said, this is our Western hub in essentially fantasy Asia. Um, that's what the area was like in first edition. And in second edition, we've tried to add a lot more nuance. So we renamed it Linvar. It's, it's an independent place mm -hmm. now. It's no longer connected to Amanandar. And that's about all I can say at the moment. Um, you, can, <laughs> uh, you, you, you can read the blog post uh, that Paizo put out for a little bit more hints on what it's going to be. But the, the challenge there is how do you recreate a place associated with colonialism that has been like a colonial outpost for you know, over 100 years? And how do you make that an actual lived place that potentially combines aspects of you know, Asian history with you know, the, the Western um, empire that, that Taldor is supposed to represent? So that, that, that's been a fun challenge, and hopefully people will like it when it actually comes out. Um, so yeah, I was lucky enough to, to work on that for the Tianxiao World Guide. Um, and then for the Seasons of Ghost Adventure Path, I uh, was fortunate enough to be able to contribute uh, some articles, some back matter articles to the to the books. So what I can say about that at the moment is it's unusual compared to other adventure paths. It's four books instead of three or six. It plays with um, kind of the, uh, uh, the the seasons. You have you have spring, winter, summer, fall. So each book is related to a season, and I, I think it'll be a lot of fun for people who are into Asian horror, like Asian horror movies or, you know, like mm -hmm. Asian horror manga and stuff like that. It does play, it does take place in Shenmen, which is another region of Tianxiao that we know nothing about except uh, for the fact that it's got, you know, spider people ruling it and it's very dark and dreary. Yeah. So I think people who have really longed for an adventure path actually set in the region instead of like Jade Regent where your characters traveled across the world from Avistan and only the last three volumes were in Tianxia proper. I think people will, will like it because it's completely set in the region and I think it really delves into some of those interesting uh, horror tropes that are really prevalent in Japanese, Chinese, Korean films. Cool. No, that, that, I, I look forward to that. I actually look forward to the books coming out, which are going to be later next year. Right. Yeah. And then uh, the adventure path is going to come out, I think end of this year, early next year. Yeah. So it's going to precede it uh, by a couple months. So because yeah. whatever timing, you know. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the there. adventure path is coming out first and then hopefully people will get a taste for everything. And I think the, the, the last two volumes of it should coincide with the world book and the character guide, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. hopefully. So, but it's you know it's good that you know the work on the books got done first because then you could tie everything. I, I presume, right? How how they work that the folks working on the on the adventure path then had access to what was written for the book, so you had some be more tightly you know. So a couple of things I've worked on it's. They'll share things coming out that's been announced, and that way you can make sure that when you're placing things or naming things or, you know, how you're showing things, it it kind of makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's you know we've just gotten the announcement that all of this stuff is coming out. Uh, you and I both know this, John. We we started working on these books back like <laughs> April of 2021 or March of 2021, I think. Or no, wait, no, not no, no, 2022. Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was gonna say it wasn't that yeah. far back. Yeah, it was, yeah. wasn't that far back, but but it's still yeah. a year ago. It's still a year ago. Right, and, and I thought they'd be coming yeah. out this summer. I didn't realize yeah. it'd be kicked off. Yeah, yeah. Things. It's yeah. And so it, the production time for these book, you know, for any TTRPG book is so long. Where it comes to the point where it's like I kind of forgot what I wrote. I got to go back and read, yes. you know, read my drafts to to remember yeah. what I what I wrote. And and as the 
you know the announcement date is getting closer you end up doing that it's like oh i can't yeah. wait until people see this so yeah. yeah um i think there was a lot of like exchanging of drafts and hopefully everything is intertwined pretty nicely yeah. i mean the people who actually buy these products and enjoy them are, are definitely going to have a good time i think and yeah. enjoy the interplay there yeah yeah no I, I definitely look forward to it so kind of changing gears a little bit now i i i don't know exactly when you ended uh work on D D beyond was there an overlap with this whole ogl situation uh, there, on that? there was there wasn't a specific overlap with the ogl because i i stopped writing D D beyond articles uh beginning of 2022 because then i just oh, okay. the, the work for paizo ramped up actually yeah yeah yeah, yeah so and sense. i just didn't i didn't have as much time um so there wasn't a specific overlap there was um like i i, I know the people who uh, work on D&D Beyond because previously it was owned by Fandom and they had a small team working on it. Now it's all owned by Wizards of the Coast. So mm-hmm. I had interacted with the folks working there. I've been on streams with them and they're all really, really good people. And so when the OGL thing happened, um, I, you know, I felt for them because they can't comment on this stuff because they're officially a part of Wizards of the Coast now. And they probably wouldn't have been able to comment when they were still part of Fandom. So it was tough. I was like, oh, you know, I feel I feel for everybody working there. Um, and I know that, you know, they're kind of wrangling things together because D&D Beyond is now like the mouthpiece for Dungeons and Dragons and is going right. to be even more so moving forward. Um, and so it was interesting for me as someone who had previously contributed to to observe what was going on and to kind of empathize with the people behind the scenes and also to just, you know, see like how they were using what was previously like a blog and sort of a media site um, and character builder as now like, okay, we're going to put out these official statements. Um, mm-hmm. Here's what they're going to say. So while there wasn't crossover for me personally, it was interesting to observe. Um, and there was crossover in the sense like that Underdark project I mentioned, I kind of put it on hold because of the whole OGL thing. I was like, what oh, do yeah. I do with this? Yeah. What do, like, what am, what am I going to do with this now? Like, I don't, I mean, now, now it's fine. Like I just put it back out. But for a while I was like, well, could I, could I, you know, it takes place in the Underdark. Could I convert this to like the Darklands in Pathfinder? And I was like mm-hmm. going through it and being, uh, being cognizant of how much work it would take to convert. And I almost went ahead and did it, except for the fact that I had already um, commissioned artwork for it. And on the and on the cover image is a mind flayer. And I was like, right, no, right, you know, right. yeah, that's yeah. Uh, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> what do I do with this? So, but it's yeah. it's fine now. I mean, it resolved itself. But it was a, a stressful time, I think. Uh, both for everyone involved at D&D Beyond and, you know, for me personally and everyone else in the industry. Well, I think definitely the creatives were, they got a lot of uh, blowback from the whole situation, even though it was really, this is a corporate business decision. Yeah. Just everybody kind of associated with, with WotC and, you know, tangentially, you know, D&D Beyond because they, they were a big part of that whole discussion and kind of the impact there. You know, even if you had nothing to do in the decision making, all of a sudden you became, you know, persona non gratis, mm-hmm. you know, with with a lot of the industry. And I hope that 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 gets mended because it's because as you've kind of epitomized, people play multiple games with different people, different systems, and you work in both. And it's not like, um, you know, it's not like you and I are going to make a lot of big policy decisions. And if we're working on something, sometimes it's just a better fit with one system than another, or you just want to play with some people that happen to do that thing. And so, yeah, it's just kind of a, I'm hoping it all now that, you know, Paizo's coming out with their own kind of OGL 
for things and mm-hmm. yeah. you know wizards is kind of backed off on on doing anything with you know uh, 1.0a that hopefully it's a non-issue but still the recovery from that negative press and publicity that's that's going to be something that takes a while for for wizards to overcome i think yeah it's it's tough i mean you know we the, there's a lot of uh there's a lot of kind of like tribalism in the TTRPG yeah. space, you know, D&D versus Pathfinder, you know, a lot of like even between editions, like third edition yeah. versus fifth edition, you know, Pathfinder first edition versus second edition, stuff like that. Um, and and it's I, you know, I equate it to comic books, which is, which is another area that I love, you know, DC versus Marvel and, you yeah. know, stuff like it's it's the exact same thing. But the people that actually work on this stuff tend to you got you got to be knowledgeable about you know both or everything right in, in this case because you, you hop between companies especially if you're a freelancer you might work for 5e you might work for paizo you might work for like chaosium um right. or palladium to bring it back to them and so it's uh <laughs> this yeah i think the creative folks are often um unfortunately at the forefront of tough decisions that are made by higher ups and they get to blow back and they got to kind of bunker down and take that blow back and wait for it to wash over it. it it's difficult like it's hard um and i think we as people that are involved in the industry maybe not full-time but you know working it we we can comment on what we think about what one company does but ultimately you got to be you know cognizant that there's you know people on the ground sort of mm-hmm. having to read all these comments on twitter and respond to them yeah for sure so, Jeremy, what advice do you have for people who are interested in getting started with freelance writing and game design? So, I would say that uh, number one thing is to uh, put something out there, which is very generic advice because everyone says that now. But it doesn't have to necessarily be an adventure published on, you know, Drive Through RPG or the DM Guild or anything like that. You know, I. I wrote a little gaming blog on Tumblr where I just talked about video games and I talked about my experiences running D&D and and playing other games and I did that consistently for you know almost 10 years at this point and if you have something that looks consistent and looks like it actually you know has a decent amount of text in there people do notice I think and that helped me get the D&D Beyond gig uh which obviously helped me get the gig writing at Paizo. And so one thing does lead to another. So it helps to have something out there, whether that's a podcast, whether that's, you know, a, a live stream show, or whether that's just a simple blog. I think it just helps to have something out there that you can stake your claim on and be like, hey, I made this. Uh, you can rely on me to make something else. That really helps. Uh, the second thing is to find your community, uh, find a group of people that you can make connections with because the uh, freelance business is weird. It's not... It, it, I guess you could make connections on LinkedIn or something like that, but every Mm. gig I've gotten has not been through that. Every gig I've gotten has been, hey, we're in the same Discord server, or hey, I saw this thing that you did on Twitter and I liked it. Do you want to work on my thing? Um, It's informal and it's sort of a business built on handshakes, but it is what it is. And I think if you find a community that um, can get behind you and can help you make those connections. It really helps. And for me, it was the Asians represent a podcasting community for others. It might be, you know, uh, Mastodon communities, Twitter Mm -hmm. communities, message board communities. I think all of that can help. But if you have a group of people that are taking notice of your stuff, number one, you won't get discouraged. And number two, 
they can potentially introduce you to opportunities. So I think those are the those are the things that worked for me. Having a having an outlet that I could point to and say like I did this, and also knowing people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So you mentioned the Underdark project that you're working on. Do you have anything else uh, that you're working on that you can talk about? Yeah, so the Underdark project is a personal thing of mine, uh, heavily influenced by R.A. Salvatore's Dritz novels, and mm-hmm. you know I really like that section of Forgotten Realms lore. So when it will be out, I don't know. Like I have the artwork ready for it, and I've written most of the text for it, but I need to go back and revamp a couple things because it really did get put on hold thanks to the OGL uh, fiasco. And so at this point, I might just wait until 2024 when one D&D or whatever, <laughs> D&D revised 5e or D&D 5.5 or 6e or whatever they're going to call it comes out. I might just release it then. Uh, other than that, there is um, the work I previously mentioned for Undying Corruption. Um, I'm not exactly sure how it's going to be released yet, but I've played a role in converting all of the races into ancestries for Pathfinder 2nd mm-hmm. Edition and classes as well into uh, playable ones for second edition so i i think that they, they might get released bit by bit on maybe drive through rpg or something like that but uh even for folks who did not sponsor or did not back the undying corruption kickstarter you will be able to hopefully play this play this stuff in the near future and last but not least there's some other pies of work that i can't talk about because it, it won't be an, it won't be announced for yeah. for some time so I, I can neither confirm nor deny my participation in any upcoming uh products related to those properties but hopefully hope, hopefully they'll come out soon and people will enjoy them and i'll be able to tweet about them yes it, but you have more stuff coming so that's good to yeah, I, I, yeah i have yeah. more stuff coming down the pipeline yeah excellent excellent well jeremy it's it's been great getting a chance to get to know you better and and thanks for joining us on the podcast today absolutely it was a real pleasure thank you john yeah.